0: Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a Black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry.
1: Right now, I'm feeling pretty, pretty good, pretty content. My name's Mohana. So I am currently a school social worker in the Kansas City metro area on the Missouri side. So I work in the Kansas City public school district and um, I actually work in an alternative school setting. So we work with grades seven through 12 in a separate building where we work with students who typically, for whatever reason, cannot stay at their home school um, or don't want to stay at their home school. So mm-hmm. that could be reasons that are kind of that might you might come straight to your mind like discipline attendance academics that stuff but then there's also mental health reasons maybe a student is going through some sort of crisis and they're not able to focus on their work in a bigger school setting so they come to us Um, there are a lot of different reasons why a student might need our setting but ultimately we have smaller class sizes we have multiple people who can support students the way that i do they have different titles but there's three or four of us in a building whereas a typical high school might have one rotating social worker among other buildings. So we offer a lot of support and accommodations and just needed things that students might not find in their typical school building. So that's what I do on a regular basis. I am, I do work 12 months throughout the year. So even though summers are quiet, we're there to support our students throughout the whole year. So we've we've had students with housing crises, with needing um, things for their children or for their families. We've had students ask about back-to-school supplies. And so I give them the DL on all of the, you know, all of the back-to-school events and how you can get items and what we have in our clothing closet, if anything's available for students. So I'm always trying to hook families up. I'm always trying to do what I can to make their lives a little bit easier, whatever that can be.
0: I love that. That's such a beautiful A job, a necessary job, and one that requires, like, probably a lot of your own kind of giving back to yourself, because it sounds like your job, especially as a social worker, you're constantly giving, 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 and working to make sure that people don't get left behind in whatever kind of system that they're navigating.
1: I I would absolutely agree with that. And I think, I don't know, it's probably not across the board, but I would say most social workers could probably tell you that Self-care is high on our priority list, but also so hard to get to, you know, before we really need it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's hard to be proactive about self-care. It's always, you know, oh no, I, I find myself in a really bad place or I can't man- manage this or that, instead of, you know, making your life on a daily basis manageable so that when you do reach those crises, you can deal with it accordingly. But yeah, I I have to agree. Self-care and showing yourself grace while also being accountable to yourself it's a it's a struggle all the time always but um i i have a lot of colleagues in the field who are older than i am or have been in the field longer than i am and you find your rhythm eventually and sometimes you need to find a new rhythm depending on life changes or career changes or whatever that may be but it's always just a working journey on trying to figure out how you can stay sane enough to continue to do the work
0: Man, that's something I truly admire because I'm um, I'm an empath and so like I'm constantly absorbing energy and I just feel like if you are in any way an empath how hard it would be to hold so many young people's stories and situations and then also be the problem solver for them as well.
1: So the concept of being an empath is actually very new to me. So I obviously know the term empathy and I know what it means to be empathetic or empathic, but the idea of actually being an empath and having that type of personality where you do really feel what other people feel very strongly and actually have trouble like discerning your own feelings from what you're feeling about someone else. I It, it didn't occur to me that that's a way that a person could be and actually the way that I am as well you know, I'm also in therapy and in, in therapy, I'm constantly trying to dissect my own feelings from the feelings associated with the people that I work with. Is yeah. it really my issue that, that I'm fixating on? Or is it someone else's issue that I feel like I need to fix or haven't been able to fix or can't fix? And that's why I'm struggling with, I'm always trying to figure that out. And I think having a name for it, being an empath is helpful because I never even knew that that was a struggle. That you or i or anyone could have
0: that's totally true i'm so glad that you kind of like slow down and explain that because i talk about being an empath like people understand it and that's exactly it where sometimes i'm like i am so stressed today because of a story i heard from my partner and now i'm worried about that thing but it actually isn't my feelings for <laughs> how yeah <laughs> it went. like why am i holding this so tightly and it, it feels like especially at work, I also find that when you're an empath, people gravitate towards telling you things because you tend to just listen, you're a listener, right? And I feel like in the many scenarios I find myself in at work or outside of work, people just tell me what is happening. um, And I give them that uninterrupted space to just talk. But then afterward, I'm like, I'm holding all of your feelings now and this is why i know it would be unproductive for me to be a social worker because (laughs) i would be trying to hold all these stories and i would just be like i'm a mess i can't help them
1: it it makes you feel really bogged down a lot just holding on to everything at once and that's why you know, having the ability to compartmentalize is really important. I don't really know if I have that ability yet. I'm certainly working on it, that's for sure. But um, really just compartmentalizing and trying to figure out in your head, what makes sense to focus on what makes sense to, to feel about in general. And um, my therapist has really helped me find ways to make you know, draw that line between okay, this is this is my problem and my feelings, and this is someone else's problem and their feelings. Something that really works for me that I feel like other people might be able to understand is the drive to and from work. That's why virtual. I, I realized I was really missing something during virtual school year or virtual work for for everyone really, um, and it was the drive to and from work was a huge way for me to. Process okay. I'm going to work now. I'm transitioning to doing this and and talking this way and doing these things, and then having that 20 minutes or however long after work to think about everything and almost like debrief with yourself if that makes sense. Yeah. Before coming home and ideally being able to put everything away and just focus on being at home. Now that doesn't happen all the time. Most yeah. of the time it doesn't. But I have found that using the drive to just uh, summarize what I did at work that day, or whatever, is really, really helpful. And I didn't have that drive time while we were virtual to separate work from home. And then, obviously, working at home made that ten billion times more difficult. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I see the value in in going to an office or going to a building and going to work every single day because that's what helps me keep myself in check and and make sure that things are in the right boxes, I guess, in my head.
0: Um, Yeah, that's such a great way to put it. I always think about it as like, how do I, um, especially a lot of my work I've done, I work from home, but in that I wasn't living in a pandemic so I could work from coffee shops or, you know what I mean? I was never an office person, but I still didn't work in my home and so I spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, how do I like make that clear transition into evening now? What does that look like? Because right now I'm working from my kitchen, from my living room, which is my life. And so then you just carry those work problems into those spaces. <laughs> and yes. so without this like drive time or just the difference between being in an office and then being in your work your home space, it, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, what is that clear distinction I can make? And sometimes it's just like going outside, doing a walk and then coming back and now we've signified the evening. Um, but yes. it's so interesting how you thought, yes. like you talked about it as like a summary. So you can kind of like, okay, that was the day that I had and then let it go.
1: Yeah. And there are other ways, you know, I I really struggle with sticking to good habits. Like I have really, really tried to journal every day after work and just spit out some feelings on paper that didn't stick for very long. Um, I tried, you know, doing some yoga and meditation before work after work that didn't stick for very long, but they come back, you know, I, if I need to do that I'll do it and I'm trying not to harp on myself so much about not doing something that I'm supposed to be doing or not caring my caring for myself in a way that's supposed to be expected. I said earlier
0: that I was excited to have you on this podcast because a lot of your Instagram content, besides beautiful photos of yourself, well, along with the beautiful photos of yourself, are usually captions that really challenge the idea of traditional beauty standards. And I think that's really important. And I also want to open up the space right now for you to kind of share your story and why you do that.
1: Yeah. So I, first of all, really appreciate that you have noticed that and that you have you know, kind of taken that with you, because that's always the goal when, when making those captions is I want someone to read this and be able to think about it and hold on to it and hopefully have some sort of impact on them, whatever that is. I, you know, I have a hair loss disease. I have alopecia. I developed it. Well, it is a genetic condition and you can be triggered to begin that hair loss process by lots of different things. I know people who have been triggered by a stressful event in their life. My family believes that it was some stressful things going on in my household at the time that may have triggered my hair loss to start as a child. We don't really know for sure, but there's always something that that starts it out. So, you know, by the time I was 11 years old, I had lost all of the hair on my body for no reason other than I have this autoimmune condition and my body doesn't want my hair anymore. And that begins a really early journey that no Eight year old, 10 year old, 12 year old really needs to go on about growing up really fast and trying to figure out the world around you in a way that no one else, literally no one else around you, understands because it's very isolating to have alopecia, especially before social media. Now, I mean, and I, and I can talk about how horrible and amazing social media is <laughs> for hours when it comes to this, but back then, truly no sense of community. Um, and so even your parents or your sister or your best friend who has watched you lose your hair, they will never, ever, ever truly understand what it is like to go through that experience. And so I try really, really hard to convey exactly what I go through in those captions, in those Instagram posts to give people a sense of, okay, this is what it's like to live with this condition. And also to give other alopecians a sense of, oh, okay, she really gets it. She knows what this is like i can connect with her because she also lost her hair and feels this sense of disillusionment with society in general Mm -hmm. um so that's it's it's been it's so hard to put it into words because it's been so long i've i've been this way for many 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 years now i celebrate the anniversary of shaving my head every november for the first time um which was i think in fifth grade is when is when that happened Mm -hmm. so it really does put a whole new lens on looking at the world and growing up, looking and being and feeling completely different from your peers. It's, mm-hmm. it's transformative. And it's hard, especially as a kid to to go through that.
0: Yeah, yeah, you touched on a piece that I think is important to emphasize, which is the representation, like you felt Absolutely. isolated, because without social media, and, and whatever, like everybody around you had a different physical appearance. So what does it feel like? To be othered in those spaces just because you're different right so i pulled quotes for this section on beauty because i think it universally we all grew up with different beauty standards that most of us didn't feel like we fit into um and then a lot of problematic beauty quotes and so Mm -hmm. (laughs) i will start with one that if you ask anybody like okay what's a beauty cliche the first thing i thought of was beauty is pain Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that statement?
1: Oh yeah, that is, it's definitely a cliche, that's for sure. But I think it's one that people still really run with these days. Um, it's its a cliche for a reason. Um, and I think that it just goes to show how far we will go as a society to make sure we look good to other people and can be perceived as good or beautiful or hot or whatever that is, how far we will actually go to seek that approval. And, you know, in in some ways I agree with it in a very, 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 personal sense like i will do x y and z in order to make sure that my makeup looks fabulous today or whatever oh, yeah. or i i went to a wedding this weekend and i wore a lot of makeup and i wore a lot of stuff to keep my makeup on all day and yeah it was uncomfortable but i wanted to make sure i could get through the whole night like on a very personal note mm-hmm. i can understand that statement but as a societal whatever i think that it can be very damaging and i think that social media especially just having accessibility to everyone's face and their lifestyle, and only the highlights of literally their face and their lifestyle, is so um, misleading. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know that that is exactly the way that their life is every single day, um, and that we need to do what they did in order to achieve that same lifestyle and that same happiness that they seem to convey online. It's a very dangerous sentiment. And I hope that that's something that, you know, representation from underrepresented people, I hope that as that continues to happen, or as I hope it continues to happen, we can break down that narrative of, oh, beauty is pain. Beauty is whatever you want it to be. And beauty is very subjective. And it makes no sense to impose a standard of beauty that is completely different to everyone. Can I cuss on your... Yeah, absolutely. Fuck that. Fuck (laughs) beauty is pain. Because that is ridiculous. And I think that that is, again, something that we really take and run with, especially in young people, that you should be going through some sort of pain, mental or physical, in order to be beautiful. It's not cool. It's not okay. That
0: last part. Absolutely fucking right. Like I just think of as a kid, I was always I was always heavier than all my peers and I look different. I grew up in predominantly white spaces and I'm a Mm -hmm. black person, so my body's different. But like I remember thinking of that phrase and thinking I should be doing more so I can be more in pain so I can look as beautiful as them. Like that's a warped way to think. But that's what you know, that's what young people will get from that statement.
1: Absolutely. A hundred percent. And also that it's, that that's okay. And, and that it, it should be okay. And right. that there's nothing wrong with tormenting yourself in order to look a certain way. That's right. it, it's, it's very, it's very normalized. And, um, you know, I, I think we all have our own very personal opinions when it comes to, you know, modifying or altering yeah. your body or whatever to fit these societal standards or whatever it is. And again, I, I, think that on an individual personal note, do what makes you happy, do what is going to make you feel beautiful. If that means modifying your body, if that means plastic surgery, whatever it is, I want that person to be happy. But I think spreading the message that plastic surgery and body modification and even, even makeup at a very, (laughs) very young age at a certain point can be very damaging. And it just, I, I don't know, it just promotes, Something that is literally unattainable unless you have money, resources, and are an adult. I, I feel like mm-hmm. kids are forgetting that these kids on social media who are getting lip fillers and things like that—they need parent permission, right? For those kinds of things, like that doesn't even come to my mind when I'm thinking about 14-year-old influencers with lip fillers. I'm just like, wait a second—that's not a thing that you can just go and do. There, right. if that makes sense, you know what I mean? There's so much more to it than social media says there is
0: there's so much more to it. And I think that's something even a close friend of mine shared that that was something that was very common in her family body modification was like promoted as the beauty standard. So they um, bought her a nose job at 15. And she was like, I did she she was like, Okay, first of all, I didn't even think I needed a nose job. Mm-hmm. But now you guys are saying that's what I need. And she went through with it because that was the norm. And I I just that's not the story that's told behind these Instagram photos, right? We're missing exactly a world of trauma that young people are experiencing. And even with social media and we've talked a little about about the dangers. I work for social media, so um, (laughs) I will I will. But this is one thing that I I talk about all the time at work is like certain things like filters on Instagram, while they're cute and fun for people who are older, who who kind of have like a more formed um, connections in their brain, as a young person, you see them be like, oh, this is what makes me more beautiful. This is how my face should actually look. Mm-hmm. And then that actually causes real harm. And you see like the suicide rate among younger people go up because of things like social media. Um, and so all this to say, beauty is pain, fuck that.
1: Yeah. a thousand percent yes beauty should feel good it should not hurt you to feel or be beautiful it should be liberating it should feel good it should bring you joy
0: absolutely period Period. okay we're gonna leave we're gonna leave that quote alone now (laughs) this next one so this is something I feel like we still get I think as a society I just don't feel like enough people have condemned it so I'm just (laughs)
1: like I already gave you
0: my feelings about it I couldn't hold back (laughs) but the statement is um how do you want to feel this summer fit or jealous?
1: Oh my God. Don't even get me started on how angry that makes me feel like immediately. That is so unbelievably harmful. And I've noticed that this weird surge of you're supposed to look this certain way during a certain season. And I'm just like, what the hell is that about? Where did I I truly don't remember feeling that way when I was younger that, okay, I need to prepare my body to look a certain way in summertime. Now there's all sorts of other things that were going on with peer pressure and body image and that, but that specific sentiment, I do not remember experiencing in middle school and high school and and beyond until very recent times where um, I I think hot girl summer is very, very important. And I think we should all abide by that, but abiding by that does, that's all about feelings. That's not about, your your body and that's not about making sure that you weigh a certain amount or have a certain body shape in order to wear swimwear or something like that I think that is heartbreaking to be honest because Mm -hmm. even before social media swimwear can be a really touchy thing for for women especially but for anyone when you're wearing swimwear of any kind for any gender you're exposing your body more than normal that's just kind of how it goes And I think that in itself can be very triggering can be very difficult. Why are we adding all of this added pressure to look and be a certain way we It it sucks for everyone. Everyone feels some type of way about swimwear and summertime and exposing yourself and being comfortable. So I don't understand why we can't just come together in a sense of so it's okay. We all love each other. We're all going to accept each other's bodies, instead of oh shit, this means that we need, there There are standards that we need to meet. We, we need to do this. We need to work out. We need to follow this workout routine in order to do X, Y, and Z. It's it's like, I, I get it. I understand the feeling. I understand the pain and the hurt, but it can be harnessed in a totally different way than creating new standards that I swear to God never existed before. I could be wrong. I I, I really could be wrong, but I think social media has started this new thing of summer is coming. So yeah, let's get ready for summer, whatever the fuck that means.
0: Totally. I think. And even that's I mean, that statement alone is trash, but how the (laughs) sentiments come from that, like just in everyday conversations, people being like, oh, got to run, got to get my workout in summer body goals. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? You're you have a body right now and it's summertime. (laughs)
1: Like, absolutely. You
0: you don't even need to go do that workout if you're trying to fit that standard. And so but it's just all these subliminal messages, because even if you're someone who doesn't feel that way people around you constantly talking about how they have to be like fit for summer i'm like there's more than one body type fit is one that if you aspire to if you have what that's great but that's also Mm -hmm. not the only body type so when you're saying like do you want to be fit or jealous i'm i'm like i I would like to be myself
1: it Um makes a lot of assumptions (laughs) that 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 question makes a lot of assumptions about how I feel about your body, about how you feel about my body. Why are we feeling any way about each other's bodies? Why are you focused on my body in the first place? You know, all of these questions just arise from hearing that. And, you know, I, it it just, I think it's really ableist too. Um, You know, my sister is disabled. And so she and I have this conversation really often about the way that her body is perceived. And I think it's, it's really telling how, Uh, worthless society feels disabled bodies are and how unimportant they are and how they don't really fit in with the mold of what's beautiful and what's acceptable. It's honestly disgusting. And I think having conversations with with my sister and also just, you know, learning more about ableism, about beauty standards has really shown me that it is extremely harmful to be posting and endorsing, that's the word, endorsing these uh, lifestyles that are emphasizing being fit that fitness will bring you health and fitness will bring you joy and fitness will bring you happiness. That is just not true. It simply isn't. And it's really, really shitty to tell people that it is.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. I can't, I can't say anything more or better because that like truly that is exactly why I couldn't believe I saw it in so many places when I did a quick search. It's permeated our culture so much that people Find it okay to say that. It's trendy to be like that. And I just. It is. I really can't. So I won't. Um, The (laughs) last. So, cause I, and I feel like I deal with it like on a day-to-day basis, even in like my own friendship circles, you know, you, you have, I do work out a lot because of, for my mental health. And so sure, I yeah. have friends that I work out with or that were on the same programs and platforms, but then the way that they'll talk about it sometimes is triggering to me where I'm like, yeah. actually, I'm trying to get out of that mindset and I'm trying to call this a movement practice so that I can feel good in my body. The one that mm-hmm. I have not. So I can acquire a different body, one that I may never have, and I don't really need that. <laughs> like I just, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think that it, we have really done everyone a disservice by making the assumption that look looking a certain way equals healthy, because you have absolutely no idea someone's health history by looking at their body. It says no, it tells you absolutely nothing, and I think that humans, we tend to be really nosy. And we say that we care about other people's health and things like, no, we don't. No. We're just, we're just being assholes. And we're just trying to make people feel bad about themselves under the guise of health. That's what it is. It's it's not about, oh, I care about you. And so that's why I'm trying to tell you that you're unhealthy and you should do that. no, it's, it's, it's not about that. And I, I think that it, it really sucks because it makes people feel guilty when they aren't doing a certain regimen or exercising a certain way or eating certain foods that they have been told are good for them or, or whatever the case may be. It is an unnecessary guilt that people feel. And I hate it. It's, it's not fair for certain people to be made to feel that way because they look a certain way. It's just, it's unfair.
0: So recently, this is very timely. One named Jeff Bezos went to space and um, I don't care about that tried to block it from my mind because why why when you could be doing so many things for this planet why are you going somewhere else to colonize something else
1: you could start an entire podcast about reasons why jeff bezos shouldn't be doing what he's doing
0: maybe i will maybe this will be (laughs) maybe this will be my next healing practice um but one thing that you called to attention was that while people were saying all kinds of things about why he was doing it whatever pointing out just how selfish of a person he is, all very true. They would also comment on the fact that he was bald.
1: Yeah. In a
0: derogative way. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Like associated with the fact that he's a shit person.
0: Exactly. And so I'm sure that I wasn't the only person who was missing that. Like, I didn't even see it because I was trying to ignore all those things. But even if I had come across those memes and stuff and I saw that, I would have been like, no, don't do that. Right. Um, But the way I feel like how you've called it out, I'd love to hear you say it live so that people can start being more aware of these things and also telling their friends to stop being assholes.
1: Yeah, I think there's a very general rule of thumb that we can use in order to avoid situations like this. Right. And I think that is anything that someone can't control about their appearance, leave it out. Just leave it out of the equation, leave it out of the argument, leave it out of whatever insult that you're about to hurl at. The person who probably deserves it it, for for other reasons, if that makes sense. So that just needs to go because the tweet that I posted, I don't remember what it said exactly, but any tweet that is pointing out Jeff Bezos for being a shit person, great, like love it, fantastic. You're absolutely right. But then throwing in the fact that he's bald and, and it's funny to you, that is where I'm like, okay, hold on, no, no, no. I, I can't let that slide. And the reason why I can't let that slide is because even if it doesn't seem like you are or that the person who wrote this was doing it, you are equating being bad with being bald. And there's no way around it. I'm That's just the way that it goes. And there was another example of this that happened just a couple of months ago where I saw a tweet and I think I put it on my story, I can't remember but it was a tweet about Justin Bieber's ugly ass hair and how mm. he's attempting to do dreads, dreadlocks, locks. And they, it looks horrible on him because he doesn't have the hair and he's appropriating the culture for it. Yes, That is all very true. Call it out. Justin Bieber has done some other terrible things. That's great. That's wonderful. But the tweet said that they were looking forward to his locks falling out so that he could be bald and they could laugh at him. Uh-huh. That is where I'm like, okay, So we all know that his hair is gonna fall out. Like we all know that that's gonna happen. We all know that that hair is not meant for the type of hairstyle and the type of protective care that he is doing. We all know that. You don't have to turn it into the butt of the joke that he's going to lose his hair as a consequence of this shitty decision that he made. You know, there there are other way more worse consequences of his behavior than the fact that he's going to lose his hair. Right, right. And so that made me really angry. And I almost felt bad about posting about both the Justin Bieber thing and the Jeff Bezos thing, because it seems like I'm calling something out that doesn't really seem worthwhile to call out. Might as well focus on the fact that Jeff Bezos exploits his workers or the fact that he does this or he does that or he hoards his wealth. I mean, yes, those are all very important things that we need to talk about, but there are multiple truths. And it's still true that you can't just say, he's a shitty person and he's bald oh ha 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 like you're still you're hurting people by doing that I, i know that that story really resonated with the alopecia community because i got a lot of responses from my friends online who have alopecia who said basically thank you for saying something in the first place we had seen lots and lots of tweets lots of instagram posts saying something similar or the same post being reposted and we didn't say anything, even though our feelings were hurt, because we knew no one would care, no one would understand. And I'm like, I posted that for you guys, because, because we all know that not enough people are going to care about this, unless we start talking about it, unless we raise some hell about this. And I even, you know, anytime that I post something that might seem trivial about alopecia, I always add some sort of little note at the end, like, I don't care if you think it's not that deep you can think that you you can think that, oh, it's it's not that deep. What is she complaining about? She has a great life. Who, you know, who cares if, you know, if she lost her hair or uh, on the other side of things, who cares that someone made fun of Jeff Bezos for being bald? He has done so many horrible things. Um, yes, I, I I agree in the sense that Jeff Bezos is someone who, you know, I don't care if he's made fun of. I don't, I don't really care. He, he's not, he's a terrible person. And, um, you know, any any bad sentiment that's wished upon and whatever, that's great, fine. But what is happening is little bald boys and girls and children and young people are seeing that and uh, realizing that, oh, we are the butt of the joke. We are the people whose pictures are plastered when something is being made fun of. And I have even called out alopecia TikTokers who make fun of their alopecia in a TikTok to make, you know, to, to make people laugh or to make light of the situation. I'm just like, look, you don't have to listen to me. I'm just another alopecia. You make your money on this platform, do what you got to do, I guess. But from another alopecia, I'm trying to tell you that what you're doing is actually damaging our community in the long run, because you are telling other people without alopecia that it is okay to make fun of us. And the vast majority of your watchers of your followers don't have alopecia. You know what I mean? not just it's not it it, it would be different if it were just the alopecia community because we laugh at ourselves all the time and it's great but you can't give permission to people who don't belong to the community to make fun of us and that's essentially what what people who make fun of themselves with alopecia on social media are are enabling they're enabling that behavior I, I feel that that weird feeling of like awkwardness when I talk about this and know that some someone might be listening to this and think, God, it is not that deep. It doesn't matter. There are other more important things to be talking about, to be thinking about. And I just really, really challenge whoever is feeling that way to try to see it from my lens and realize that talking about this kind of thing actually does have a pretty big impact on people who are hurting and who people and, and to people who need that advocacy and never really got it. And ultimately, the more you call out stuff like this, the less it happens. That's just kind of how it goes. It's slow and you know, me talking about it by myself, who the hell knows what kind of impact that's gonna have. But I I think it did have an impact on the people who saw it. And that's all I can really ask for is to get people to think about it, whether they agree with it or not, think about it, marinate on it, and, and just realize that the shit you say matters. Language really, really matters. It's not just words. It's not just a sentence. It's not just a joke. You have no idea how you're impacting someone with your words when you just say something without thinking about it. And, you know, I've, I've learned that as a social worker, that the shit that I say in front of students that I think may not have been a big deal, they carry that with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had student, a, a student did something um, funny in a cafeteria. He tripped and I let out a giggle. That kid came up to me the next day and he said, Missy, I'm still thinking about how you laughed at me in the cafeteria yesterday. Oh. And so. I had to sit and unpack all of that and apologize and say, you know what, that was really rude of me. I did not know that, you know, I impacted you in that way. And I'm so sorry that I laughed at you for tripping in the cafeteria. I need to watch what I'm doing and make sure that next time I help you or make sure that, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's okay to slip up and be wrong, but Mm -hmm. now, now you know, now you know that you're wrong. So don't do it again.
0: I'm not going to lie to you. Like, we all know Jeff Bass is a piece of shit. Okay. I I know this and I know the reasons why. And so I don't necessarily need to see a thousand Instagram posts about that. I would like someone to also offer me something new. And if someone is telling me like, Hey, actually, when you do this, you hurt an entire community of people, then we should fucking stop it. Like, I think that's, and it was interesting because you said like, you know, Is this that deep to bring this up when we could be talking about how he's hoarding wealth? Well, actually, you did both. (laughs) I feel like that's something we're all capable of doing. You took a look at this. You were like, hey, this is nasty, harmful and horrifying when we should be focusing on the fact that he's evil for these reasons. Mm -hmm. He's actually not evil for his appearance. And I think that's something that like that slowed me down. And I was like, okay this is something that we all should be talking about. This is something we all should be aware of. We should stop this from happening in our circles, wherever the case, like just check that out the door because to equate baldness with like evilness and the ugliness that is this billionaire who apparently doesn't give a shit about the planet that we live on, nope. like that's just unfair for yeah. so many reasons that people aren't thinking about. They're just like, let me just throw this insult out. And like you said, words matter. And I think that we all have a responsibility to use them more responsibly.
1: I was part of an alopecia support group for some time. I ended up leaving for personal reasons, but the time that I did spend there was very valuable. And one of the most important conversations that we had was about the way cartoon villains are portrayed in movies. And that went that we talked about, uh, you know, the shape of their nose, the the very angular shape of their face. But we also talked about the baldness. There are a lot of villains in movies that are bald and the biggest one that i thought of was Gru from despicable me he was the first obviously he you know he's a more complicated character than <laughs> other villains you know he has all of his whatever but that's the first person that i thought of and the way that they make him look is they do everything they can to make sure that he looks like an evil persona well you know add the weight add the angular appearance of his body add the lack of hair he looks like a villain and add the larger nose villain like we have ascribed these body traits to be villainous and to be Mm -hmm. evil and it's disgusting it's racist in a lot of ways and it's just plain hurtful Mm -hmm. like it, it it really hurts and i think it's time for people to open their eyes and see how even these little things influence us in huge huge ways especially children like especially children and something that i've learned in in therapy is that my childhood is filled with things that I still need to unpack because of things that I'm going through now, if that makes yeah. sense. I, I I really have come to understand that I'm not done, you know, facing some of the demons that I faced as a kid. I'm still working through that. I'm still processing that. And if we can do what we can to lessen those demons for kids, can can we do that? Like, can we make sure that we're kind to people and, and not, demonizing them because of their appearance. Like I feel like that's such a small ask, but it's it's obviously not.
0: Well, it's a cause that I'm dedicated to, and Absolutely. it also brings us into our next segment. You did such a great job with that transition. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> Cuz I want to dig into more of your story, your journey, and as you know, this podcast is called That's No Longer My Ministry, and in the main segment, I ask you what is no longer your ministry?
1: No longer adhering to anyone's expectations but my own. And that can be translated in a lot of different ways. But I feel like I can speak specifically about my alopecia when I'm thinking about this, because I have really, really connected with the alopecia community online in the last six months in ways that I never even thought were possible. Um, It's been kind of incredible, actually. I've even met some of my friends with alopecia in person in the last couple of months who live in different parts. It's It's been amazing. But more than anything, I have really learned that even within the alopecia community, There are things that people do, ways that they deal with their alopecia that make me feel insecure. And the number one thing that makes me feel that way is wigs. Um, Because wigs are a big thing in the alopecia community, obviously, you know, and wigs have also come a very, very long way. Literally props to Black women for making that happen. Let's be real here. Because that's why wigs have Come such a long way over the last few years. And the alopecia community gets to benefit from that. And I don't think enough people really call that what it is because that's what it is. But wigs are a huge thing in the alopecia community. And something that I have observed within that little circle is there are some alopecia influencers. So people on Instagram who promote certain products or who promote a certain lifestyle that has to do with their LP shirt, promotes fashion or, you know, all mm-hmm. of this cool shit that I never thought I would ever possibly see on social media. And many, many, I would say most of these influencers wear wigs. They promote wigs from different companies. They have tutorials on how to install them. Mm-hmm. And boy, when I say these wigs are realistic as fuck, I can't even I mean Show me a picture of just the person in their wig, and I would have never. I wouldn't be able to tell you that that's a wig because the hairlines are impeccable and just beautiful. Yeah. The knots are bleached. It's, they're perfect. And what do you know? That just turned into another insecurity. You know, it, that just turned into another reason why I feel like I'm not doing this right. I'm not doing this alopecia thing right. And that feeling has come up so much over the last few months. I had a leadership position in this alopecia support community that I recently left. And I actually felt wrong being in that leadership position because the way that I had dealt with my alopecia was very different from open acceptance and talking about it and embracing it. My best way to deal with my alopecia had been basically ignoring it, not really thinking about it, never bringing it up in conversation unless someone asked about it first. I had to work for years on defensiveness. I mean, people still ask questions in really shitty ways. Let's be real. But when someone is just approaching me out of curiosity, especially a student or a young person, just trying to let go of the defensiveness because you know, they're not coming from a bad place. They're just curious. I still had a lot of residual anger about having alopecia. And I wasn't one to like show it off or, or talk about it. Like if you ask my friends growing up, was Mohana like talking about her alopecia all the time? Like, no, she wasn't. She she did when she had to, but it's not like I was like this living emblem of, of alopecia. I didn't want to be that. In fact, yeah. my ultimate goal was to be like as invisible as possible. And that was really difficult because my fashion choice is wearing headscarves and they're very colorful and they kind of set me apart in a crowd. I, I would get really severe anxiety at KU, for example, where, where we both went yeah. because I knew for a fact That more people knew who I was than the other way around. They didn't, maybe they didn't know anything about me. They might not have even known my name, but they knew who I was because they could point me out in a crowd. That used to give me gut-wrenching anxiety. Just Mm. like, I don't want to be known. I don't want to be the scarf girl. I don't want to be anyone. I just want to live my goddamn life. That's what I wanted. And it didn't feel right that that was my M.O., being mm-hmm. in a leadership position for, for an alopecia support group where you're supposed to be embracing yourself and being super outward about, it just didn't make any sense. And I had painstakingly long conversations with my partner and my and my mom, like, am I the right fit for this? I just don't know. And I think for the longest time I was faking it a little bit, you know, yeah. I, I was faking the Enthusiasm. I was faking the, oh, I'm so happy to have alopecia. One question that came up a lot in our meetings and on social media in general is if you had the cure all for alopecia, would you do it? Would you take it? And of course, as as an alopecia leader, my answer needs to be no. Why would I ever take a cure for alopecia? I love my baldness. I, okay, no, that's just not true. If there were a cure all for alopecia, I would, without even Taking a breath, I would take it. Are you kidding me? Of course I would take it. You know, maybe it doesn't work and that's fine, and then I'm like this, and that's great, and that's fabulous. But why would I not even try something that could make me feel a semblance of normal? You know, Mm -hmm. why why wouldn't I? And I think that there was a lot of unspoken shame among the people who would take that pill or would do that. We were preaching self-acceptance and, but self-acceptance in the sense that like your end goal is that you're going to love being bald. You're going to be bald. You're going to be publicly bald and you're going to love it. Like that was our finish line. And I'm like, I'm not even at that finish line. I don't leave my house without something covering my head. And now there's something telling me that there might be something wrong with that. New standards just started appearing within my own little bubble of having alopecia. And it's just like, you can't escape it. You, You just can't escape expectations. And I think it was after I left that position and started being more honest with my friends and with myself that people came out of the woodwork and they're like, I'm like you. you know. I still feel a little bit of shame, sometimes a lot of shame. My ideal way to deal with alopecia is thinking about it as little as possible. I've had people, very close friends say, look, I'm gonna be wearing wigs forever. And the way that you guys kind of laid things out for us in this support group is that I'm weaker And I'm not as able to accept myself because I'm still going to wear wigs forever. What kind of message is that? That's not fair to anyone. That's not, and that's so not fair to a person who's gone through hair loss.
0: Right. And And that's not a way to support them if that's not how they need to be
1: supported. And I think the message that I really want to send besides one of like, well, you know, I'm happy with the way that I look is like, who cares what I look like? And I don't want it to be the focus of, of anything other than, you know, I have this really cool perspective on life. And I went through these experiences. And I think it's safe to say that, you know, I'm a social worker because of these experiences. I'm a nicer person than I think I would be if I hadn't lost my hair. And I think most alopecians are. I think Mm -hmm. we have an ability to really empathize with people who are struggling. Just that feeling of, fuck, I can't get out of this situation. We really know what that feels like, especially when it's your own body making these calls for you. Like, your body's calling the shots, but your brain isn't. Like that's it, that feeling of being trapped is so real for a lot of us in lots of different ways. I truly had to and continue to have to sit down and separate what I want for myself, what's important to me, and what would make me happy from what I feel like would make an alopecia happy or, or mm. what would make, you know, just a regular person happy. I see those videos of a person with alopecia total body hair loss, like me drawing on their eyebrows and installing a wig so beautifully. And I need to learn how to just say, okay, that's really pretty and move on instead of fuck. Like, of course, you know, she has this brand spanking new wig and she looks really, really great. And she's beautiful. And she's going to be able to walk outside and not have anyone stare at her. And I'm not, that is what I'm in the process of letting go of is putting any sort of label on what my alopecia is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like because yeah. the only person who really knows it is me and other people are going to benefit from my alopecia content. I want people to to know what, what it's really like to, to battle with those feelings. I feel like you commented on this post a while ago. It was a very vulnerable post about the James Charles incident mm-hmm. and it was a picture that my boyfriend had actually t- taken of me. We thought it was kind of funny. I was in the bathroom and I was just having a terrible, terrible day and I was just having all sorts of bad feelings about my body and I was just looking in the mirror and it was just it was just bad and he loves film and photography and so he pulls out his camera as a way to make me smile make me feel better and so I'm, I'm literally sitting on the toilet like crying and he's taking pictures of me and then he you know he like says something or makes like a funny noise or whatever and there's another picture that's obviously not online where my face is covered in the toilet paper that I use to wipe my tears. And he took like a really nice picture of that. And we laugh about it. And it's really, it. Really funny. But I need people to see that picture of me feeling like ass on the toilet, hating my body, hating myself, and hating that no one cares that James Charles is making a mockery of what I look like. Just it was so frustrating to me that I had explain it to anyone at all i had to explain it to my own partner he's Mm -hmm. always very understanding and very kind of course but he truly did not understand how hurt i was by that youtube video that james charles made until i literally walked him through it step by step why it hurt my feelings and it was just like another nail in the coffin of no one gets this no one understands be a, a, a brown woman an indian american first generation woman with alopecia that story, that definition, that's, that's mine. And I don't want anything or anyone else to influence that anymore. It's okay to feel insecure when I see those wig videos or when I see, you know, someone with alopecia who, I don't know, for example, is white and has a very, very traditionally beautiful face. And so even those distinctions change the way people treat you and see you. Did you ever go to Colors of KU? I
0: didn't, I didn't get to do it. And I was one of my biggest regrets.
1: It was wonderful. And I I think I did it my junior year of of college and Colors of KU was incredible. You know, I, I met some amazing people there. I had a very transformative experience, but I will say that there was one experience at Colors of KU that I had many conversations about this later and provided feedback and all of that good stuff. But there was this activity that we did as a whole group where we sat in a circle And in the middle of the circle was a single rack of clothes with hangers on it. And each hanger was a paper hanger and it had uh, like a label or an identity on it. I don't think it was very specific. I literally think it just said like race, gender, religion, and any sort of like personal descriptor. And if we wanted to, we were asked to go up there, pick a hanger and talk about which one had impacted us the most positively or negatively. And so I go up there and I think that I'm about to talk about my race and I'm not, I go up there and I'm like, okay, so I'm, I'm Indian American and that definitely impacts me day to day. You know, I'm a woman that definitely impacts me day to day, but the hanger that I want to pick is not up here Mm -hmm. and I don't even know what I would call it what do you call appearance? I don't, I have no idea. So I went up there and I was like, I can't pick a hanger. I don't know what to pick. And I think that all of you in front of me would assume that I'm going to pick up the race one. And I could, and I could talk about it and have some really important things that I want to say, but that is not the thing that impacts me the most in my life. My appearance is a thousand percent. And so that turned into a really interesting conversation about how even these activities that are meant to include us and make, These conversations important, and talk about things that marginalize us, and talk about the ways that we are oppressed in society. I felt like I couldn't be a part of that conversation, Mm. and it sucked. It it really, honestly sucked. And it's not like you know, there were a couple of us alopecians who were like, "Hey, what about us?" It was like I'm the only person in here who doesn't have a hanger that applies to me the way that I feel like it should. Yeah, I still remember that activity. I still remember that feeling. It's it definitely has stayed with me throughout the years and I think it's a really good representation of how I feel walking in the world is yes I have these other identities that I know people can comprehend and people can understand but I have this wild card Mm -hmm. that makes everything so complicated and takes others understanding out of it a little bit because now this is something that they absolutely can't relate to at all. Yeah, They probably don't even know someone who can relate to it. Now that's different now with social media and everything. I have actually come to learn that there are way more people with alopecia than I ever, ever, ever thought existed. But, you know, before coming to that realization, it's very lonely.
0: Well, you've pointed out, you know, you, you want to let go of these expectations, while also holding space for yourself that... There are so few places, if any at all, where you don't feel othered, where people don't actually have this access to your wild card that makes you the most different person in the room. Mm-hmm. So if we move into the segment, it's the work for me. I'm curious about the work that you do that helps you let go. So like, we we know that social media I mean, for everybody, but in this scenario, the examples you've given have been a deterrent to your healing. And even sometimes being in the alopecia community can be a deterrent to your healing. So like, what are things that you do, the work that you do that actually can get you closer to that goal on this long journey? Because I think like for me in any kind of acceptance journey, I'm not there. I'm there yeah. some days and then I'm not at all the other day. And then, like, you know, yeah, if- so like. Yeah. what is it that you, you do, you can actively do um, or things you've stumbled upon and you're like, yeah, that is contributing to my healing and letting go of these expectations.
1: There are a few things that I have been trying that some have worked, some haven't. But the most surprising one I would have to say is actually reconnecting with people from my past, especially mm-hmm. like high school friends, people who never, ever focused on my alopecia, who grew up with me, they very, it was almost like a, like a side fact when it came to me, they didn't think about it. They were with me every single day in school. We did orchestra together. We did theater together. We did whatever we did dance together, whatever it was. I have found that talking to my high school friends and reconnecting with them and just even like reminiscing about high school or whatever has been really good for me because they, without even trying to remind me that I am a person outside of my alopecia my anxiety has gotten worse over the years. So I have become a little less confrontational, a little less feisty than I used to be as a high schooler. And I like hearing those reminders and stories about how I used to truly, I mean, almost to a fault, put up with no shit and, and, and things like that. Like, I like hearing about those things and they remind me, okay, I definitely still have that ability to put up with no shit and to be the person that I want to be and do the things that I want to do. And, I just, you know, I just celebrated a a wedding reception of a high school friend and I hung out with other high school friends while I was there. And we don't talk about alopecia. We don't even talk about work or anything. You know, we just talk about whatever. We catch up on each other's lives. We talk about high school. We drink and dance or whatever it is like they are a very like specific almost distraction that is so good for me I feel like I'm very lucky I had a great group of high school friends maybe not the best high school experience in the world but I had a really great group of friends who never ever made me put my alopecia in a spotlight for any reason unless I wanted to so I would say if it's not people from your past Finding the people who really know you and they remember things differently than we do. They remember things that we've said, things that we've done that we would never, ever hold on to in our minds. And they can tell us those things and remind us, like, hey, no, actually, you kind of are a badass and you did this and you did that. Or, you know, telling them about the experiences that I've had current day and then having their perspective on it can be really refreshing. These are not people that I talk to all the time. These are people that I reconnect with maybe once a year. Mm. And so that has been really refreshing to to reconnect with with old friends and remember who I used to be. The other things that I do <sighs> therapy. Yeah. I mean, I can't emphasize it enough and I really don't think that there's any solution for any problem that's a one size fits all. But, and therapy is very different for everyone, obviously, and therapists are very different, yeah. but I really do think anyone and everyone can benefit from therapy. I truly, truly, truly do. Whether you feel like you need it or you, you don't. Good therapists, the way that their conversations are designed are to help you think in new ways, to help mm-hmm. you challenge the way that you thought before. And damn, my therapist is so good at doing that. You know, she's an older white woman from Mississippi. I was like, I am no, I, <laughs> I have no idea how we're gonna fit but we did and the way that she helps me work is by challenging me on these thought processes that i have you know if you don't have access to a therapist or if you're struggling with the idea of having one right now one thing that my therapist has taught me that is really helpful is naming things actually calling things what they are and making them very tangible one of the challenges that she had for me after a session was to come up with a name for the feeling that I aspire to have, like the way that I want to sit in my body and be happy with myself. Like, is there a name for that? She's like, it can be a human name. It could be like a term that you can just come up with a name for it. Because if you don't name it and like write that shit down and really focus on it, it's not going to manifest. Mm-hmm. And so what I came up with, it's actually based off of a song There's this 21 Pilots song called semi-automatic. And there's this one line where he says cerebral thunder and he has a lot of like mental health issues. So cerebral thunder is the phrase that he used to describe the chaos that's going on in his head. So I decided to call what I want to be or to reach cerebral peace. Mm -hmm. And so I told my therapist this, I was like, look, I have this name. It's kind of stupid. It's from a song. I don't really, you gave me like no expectations for what you wanted to hear, but I've come up with it and it's called Cerebral Peace. And she's like, that's a really cool name. Now we're gonna make it as tangible as possible. We're gonna talk about exactly what that feels like. What body sensations are you going to feel when you reach cerebral peace? What are you gonna be thinking about? Who's gonna be around you? What are you gonna be doing? And you're like, literally naming exactly what you want, writing it down and making it tangible is what works for me especially when I'm in a state of really extreme anxiety or uncertainty. Yeah. That is the thing that I struggle with the most. And the pandemic has not been helpful with that is uncertainty. And the the less amount of time I can see into the future and predict what it's going to look like, the more anxious that I am. And in the pandemic, you can't see a day in front of you. You don't know what the hell is going to happen. You just don't. And so just writing down what I want to feel, what I want to look like, and how I want to be in that cerebral piece. It gets me that much closer to feeling that.
0: I've had therapists who have walked me through, like, what is it that you want? And then think of the feelings in your body. Like, when you need that, access those feelings in your body. And that is one thing I've always held on to because I have extreme anxiety. Mm -hmm. And similar to you, mine's like uncertainty, ambiguity, like just not knowing the next step will really throw me and it will make Absolutely. me spiral. And so if I'm like, you know what, just all I want is ease. All I want is ease. And I say this a lot to myself. And then I think, okay, what can get me closer to that feeling of ease? Okay. Right now it's just not doing anything. Or right mm-hmm. now it's just a bath. It's just writing down this one phrase over and over again. Like that's what I want. I love that you've worked out a way and that you're doing this also in your social work, but a way to name what it is you want. And then, like she said, manifest it. I think that's so that's such a powerful tool that not enough young people are taught or even older people, because Mm -hmm. I feel like if I would have had this tool in college, I would have been able to settle my mind a lot faster.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Anxiety causes a lot of fog in my brain where uh, like you know, you know, fog, like you can see things, but not really. And just driving in fog can give you anxiety because, okay, well, you kind of see the outline of the, but it could be something else. You know, I get very yes. foggy when I'm super, super anxious, the mental tool of visualizing. And if you can't do it in your head then you know, do it on paper mm-hmm. or, or write it out or however is so helpful in just alleviating some of that fogginess, even if it's not all of it, even if it's just, okay, I was at 100 and now I'm at 99, it's still one degree lower than I was before. If I get very, for lack of a better word, like triggered or very anxious or just very chaotic in a session, help me visualize what I call grandma's dock, which is a dock at My partner's family's house. They live at the Lake of the Ozarks. And that is the most peaceful place I've ever been in my entire life. And I came up with it on a whim on my very first session with her. And we've used that tool ever since then. I'm literally sitting in a pool chair on the dock looking at the water. And sometimes it'll take me a while, or sometimes I'm not having it. And I'm a little bit mean to my therapist. And I'm just like, look, this shit is not working. Stop telling you to visualize grandma's dock. But then, I do. I finally yeah. get to the point where I can or, or whatever practice that we're doing. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Okay. Yep. I remember why this was helpful in the first place. You just you gotta you got to get through that resistance a little bit and then get to the tools that, you know, work for you.
0: Um, yeah. But that resistance, my God, sometimes yeah, I,
1: res- I love, resistance is a bitch, man.
0: I love how real you were about your experience. You're like, sometimes she says grandma's doc. And I'm like, you fucking stop it with that. Yeah. <laughs> like, so- Cause I feel that wholeheartedly where I'm like, if you just get up and even do 10 minutes of yoga and I'm like, fuck yoga, yoga doesn't matter to me. And then it's like actually doing that really changed the game. Okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That happens with my kids all the time. I have a electric piano in my room. I used to play, but I don't really know how to play anymore, but it's the most incredible therapeutic tool ever. My kids will come into my room. They're dysregulated. Usually why they're in my room in the first place. And if they're dysregulated, it's likely they were triggered by a teacher or another student or something that's going on at home. Whatever's going on in their head is bad news bears. It's big and not a lot of things are going to help us break that down. But they'll come into my room and they'll be screaming or whatever. And I'm like, do you scream, whatever. But do you want to play that piano? Like while you're screaming at me or like while we're talking about this? And I don't know how to fucking play the piano. I don't either, but it's. It might make you feel better. It's very sturdy. You can bang on it. You can do whatever. I can't tell you how many kids were like, huh, that did make me feel better. Or, Missy, can I come play that piano again later? And they're just banging on it, playing with the buttons, doing whatever. I had no idea. I had no idea that that would be something that without me even having to talk a lot of the time, 10 minutes of banging it out on the piano, they're regulated and can go back to class. Yeah. Like, just try really hard to get through that mental hurdle of, this isn't gonna work, this is stupid, fuck this. If you can, yeah. you it can surprise you, it really can.
0: We can name that the resistance will happen, but trying to just get through it, I think is so key to to try and pivot, to try and get yourself regulated. Being able to like step out of the chaos for a moment, yep. to come back and be like, actually, I can handle this. So the last segment hashtag i'm not sorry and i say this because this is when you're like you know what i'm tired of the work today i'm not feeling myself today but i also know that it's just going to agitate me to keep working on it Mm -hmm. so i'm not sorry i'm just gonna go do whatever escape activity i want what are some of your escape activities
1: Oh, that's also another wonderful question. And I like that you ask that because more people in general need to be thinking about self-care and talking about self-care as a social worker. I'm on my soapbox, but it's so important. One thing that is a huge stress relief for me is my two dogs. I have two little dogs. They are very small. And it's really interesting because I never grew up with animals. I was actually very, well, I am, Pretty allergic to most animals, especially you know cats and dogs and things like that. My parents never really had good experiences with animals. A lot of people in our neighborhood had big animals, didn't leash them. They would run around. Our family had a lot of fear around dogs, especially. So I never really grew up feeling any type of way about dogs. I couldn't really relate to people who had a very very strong bond with the dog. I was just like, well, it's you know, if that's great, it's cute, it's an animal. I. I could not comprehend what that was like until I started dating my partner who has these two dogs. And we started living together about three, three and a half years ago. And at first I I still very much was like, oh, they're cute. It's so great to have them or whatever. But with time, they are a huge therapeutic tool for me in every sense of the word, whether I'm trying to work on myself or not. They're a very, very incredible thing in my life. And I, I really have just come to appreciate animals in general, just like a th- feelings that I have never felt before. Like, wow, animals are incredibly important. I, I now understand why dogs and cats and pets can be so integral to a family. Like all of these things just started to click And it was actually the first time that I cried. I don't, I have no idea why or what was going on, but Ginger, one of the dogs, I was crying and she came into my lap and she looked up at me and she was like taking my tears on her face and like drinking them. (laughs) Oh, it was, I swear to God, it was that moment where I was like, all right. I have like a soul connection with this, with this animal, with both of these dogs, because they just have such a huge capacity for emotion. And yeah, she probably didn't know why I was crying, but she knew that I was upset and she knew that she could do something about that. And so I think having a pet or an animal or something that you can take care of Mm -hmm. and something that depends on you and also takes care of you in other ways, not just food and water, but they take care of me emotionally. Absolute game changer. And then I would say this one is not as, you know, I I don't know, not as cutesy, but (laughs) teen trash TV dramas are a huge escape for me. It's not the greatest thing in the world to admit that, like, I can sit and watch five seasons of Riverdale without eating anything. And and look, it's because (laughs) teen dramas are so exaggerated, so ridiculous but also relatable in weird ways. I just can't get enough of them. And I and I'll keep watching the next one and the new one. And my partner and my friends are like, What what the fuck are you watching? And I'm like, I don't know, but I'm into it. And it's high schoolers and I work with high schoolers. I love high schoolers. And I want to know what teen drama is like these days. Yeah. And that is a that is a huge escape for me, is watching, you know teen trash. I'm watching this show on HBO right now called Generation. Have you heard of it? Oh, I Um, haven't. It's a pretty interesting show. It's about what Gen Z is like in high school. And it's very different from when I was in high school. There are people who, who are way more outwardly themselves and they're, you know, battling what it's like to be outwardly yourself in high school, whether that be gender wise or, you know, sexuality wise, whatever it is, they're just all so very open about themselves. And th- those are the battles that they're dealing with is the consequences, I guess, of being so open and yourself, which is so different from when I was in high school and the TV shows that I used to watch where you're not yourself, you're faking it, your true feelings aren't being told. And those are the struggles that you deal with. It's so, right. so different now. It's so
0: different. And yeah. it's so funny because I spent all of yesterday with Isaac watching high school musical, the series, whatever that is. <laughs> like I'm with you. I'm into this (laughs) trash TV. It's so good. It's so good. It's so dramatic. You know, you learn, I I feel like I'm learning stuff. I also feel like I'm like understanding younger people a little bit better with the caveat that all of this is blown out of proportion. Like (laughs) like, it's everything you would want in a good TV binge. And so I think that's funny. Now I'm going to, I'm actually going to put on my list generation when we're finished with this
1: one. If you're going to work with young people, at least try to be, into not into it, but at least understand what, what the kids are into. And that's not in a weird like
0: old, <laughs> cool.
1: old person type of way, trying to be cool with the kids or whatever, but it's genuinely like, you should take an interest in what the kids are interested in, in knowing about that and being able to understand why the kids are watching what they're watching. So like, I, I, I'm telling you every single moment with my kids at school they're teaching me something. I'm constantly asking questions. I'm constantly asking them what they're listening to, what they're watching, what they're wearing. I, I see so many new like symbols on clothing labels and things like that. I'm just like, I've never seen that before. And they're like, Oh, it's this, this, and this, this is their Instagram account. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, that is awesome. I just learned something completely new and I might buy something from that. You know what I mean? Like we need to remember that young people are actually really interesting and smart and cool and stop just calling them oh gen z or whatever like no they're actually people and yeah they're fascinating and they have things that they want to share and there are things that they can teach older people
0: um, so many
1: things so many, so many things, things. Yeah. And i really 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 hope that that's the perspective that i keep as i get older you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm just like this because I'm pretty much only 10 years older than the students that I work with for the most part. I hope I still retain that interest in, in what my kids are doing because I don't I definitely don't see it as much in our older staff members like that type of investment. But I'm going to hold on to it as long as I can because I want to be able to be someone that the kids can talk to about shit that they're interested in.
0: And it's also good. Like one thing that I think stood out for me and you saying, like you're watching these shows and you're watching shows that young people that you support also watch is that you're also hearing the stories that they're being told. Mm -hmm. And I think like one thing about this podcast that I found really important is like, we don't get to hear a lot of healing stories from marginalized people, which has impacted marginalized people's healing journeys. Like we don't know what to do because we're usually the first ones experience it or we're experiencing it in isolation. And so, for you to be like i'm watching these shows i'm understanding what these young people are being told in these shows mm-hmm. like you have a better f- reference point to understand why they might be in their turmoils because you're understanding better the kinds of issues they're dealing with and the kinds of expectations that are set up for them yeah so i just think that like there's so like it's interesting it, you might sound like oh we're just i'm just binging a teen show but it's like you're actually learning a lot about a whole culture
1: <laughs> yeah it, truly truly you are and i i think we obviously are young we're in our 20s i mean come on that's quite young but especially with social media and how fast information travels these days the gap in culture between us and the generation below us is getting bigger and bigger and i feel like between that generation and the one below them it's going to be even wider and that's fine that's great i don't mind being a bridge you know i don't mind being a bridge between gen z and millennials because we have more in common than people think that we do mm-hmm. and I don't know. I just, I think people shit on both generations way too much. There are amazing things about millennials and Gen Z. And let me tell you, the youth are smart. They know the way of the world. They know how fucked things are. Yeah. Sometimes they need a little help Googling something or putting it into the words that they, how they really want to say it, but they know they're smart kids. They know exactly what the fuck is up. And I think that we do a huge disservice assuming that they don't
0: this podcast is a labor of love and too often labor by black women happens without compensation if anything in this episode resonated and if you're taking anything along with you today please consider donating to our patreon or sending funds via venmo all information is available on that's no longer my ministry.com also Wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning in to next week's community release. Bye, fam.